Welcome. All right. Well, welcome, guys. This is our our first episode of of Energy Bites. You're one of your hosts, John Calfan, Bobby Nealon, and uh, we're here today with Talal from MI4. Hello. Appreciate you being the first mm-hmm. guest. We're thanks excited. for having me. Yeah, no, yeah, thanks for being here. I don't know that I could ask for a better first guest, actually. <clears throat> Thank you. So let's champ. <laughs> yeah, let's let's jump right into it. Uh, so just tell us about yourself. Who are you? Where kind of what's your what's your story? How'd you get to yeah. where you are today? So uh, my name is Talal Nimi, and um, I'm the founder of MI4 Corporation, and uh, we're a software company, a software and data company for oil and gas. Uh, I started MI4 in t- around 2000, and initially um, I was just doing consulting for different industries, uh, software consulting. And um, for the first uh, three or four years, I was mostly heavily involved in building um, litigation, mass litigation type um, software that didn't uh, didn't have a solution off the shelf. So I was doing something very custom. And then in, um, when that project uh, ended, I got into the oil and gas industry by accident to help a friend with something. Um, it's a very usual scenario. An engineer was very self-taught developer uh, moved to a different company and everything that he had built became now like, you know, um, an urgency that nobody else could take care of. So they called me to come in and help. And um, I really uh, liked the the difference in the momentum and the pace and between working in a, you know, legal um, uh, field versus the oil and gas field. So I liked it so much that I focused entirely on oil and gas. So ever since we became uh, dedicated to oil and gas, 90, 90% of our work. We're still a consulting firm, but we also develop our own software. So since then, we've developed multiple products for the oil and gas industry. Um, and um, here we are. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of the reasons I think you're such a great first guest, because you've got kind of both sides of it, right? You've got internal building your own software, plus you you guys have done quite a bit of consulting and you kind of get a feel for what other people do and what problems there are in the market and stuff yep. like that. Um, how, how did you get into kind of tech and, and stuff like that? I mean, were you interested, <laughs> you know, in electronics and stuff as a kid yeah. or how, how did that kind of evolve? Yeah. So I started when I was a kid, you know, when I was 10 years old and, uh, was, you know, I remember Commodore 64 was, I wanted a Commodore 64 and I was just nagging my dad to get me one. And this was, you know, back in Lebanon before I moved to the U.S. Right. And it was pretty much the price of a car. And my dad didn't understand why I, I needed it so bad. But <laughs> I was so persistent. He finally got me one. And wow. um, I just started tinkering. I was always a tinker. You know, I'd yep. take, take the VCR apart and try to put it back together. Uh, so I got into programming, you know, just for fun at first. Playing games and mm-hmm. trying to make a game and things like that. Then I got my um, my bachelor's in computer science, and uh, I was very geeky into like I wanted to to continue down that track and get a PhD in computer science and do more research like type work. But um, um, I moved to Houston in the late nineties, and um, I got my master's in computer science uh, at U of H. And um, while I was there, I mean, I started getting more. Uh, exposed to, uh, you know, real work versus, you know, academic stuff. Uh, and uh, I was actually, you know, initially I was focused on 
some projects uh, that were AI related. And um, if you want to get into that, there was an AI winter. There's a lot of, you know, ups and downs in that mm -hmm. uh, field. And then, so I switched when that wasn't working. What was know. the, what, give us a time frame. What, what so year was that? Roughly? This was in 99 and uh, I, I was uh, involved in a project that was trying to uh, uh, process uh, 3D uh, seismic data using computer vision um, algorithms, which is part of AI, mm -hmm. and uh, identifying uh, uh, reservoirs, things like that. That's crazy. It goes that far back. You know, I mean, no and, kidding. And, yeah, and it yeah. probably even goes even further back than that, yeah. probably, but it just, you know, there's, those are still hot topics. Definitely. So. That, yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I want to hear mm -hmm. more about AI winner once we get to some of these AI questions. We can yeah. keep going. So uh, then um, my my real passion was, you know, databases, data, data related. Uh, so I focused on that. And uh, most of my consulting work was initially just uh, building databases for for companies for for internal purposes and things like that. And um, what were you using? Yeah, I was gonna say, what's, what databases at the time? Mostly SQL Server. SQL, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of access databases for small things. You know, yeah. which which became came in really handy when I worked with a lot of companies that have Aries because it was all access at the time. Yeah, and uh, being able to take all these access databases and convert them into SQL server databases was a very, you know, popular thing. So that, you know, got me a lot of work early on. Cool. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you kind of make the jump or transition to kind of consulting and, and doing your own thing? Well, um, it wasn't really like a planned thing. Uh, I was initially, you know, after I finished my, uh, my degree, uh, I was working for for a company and um, uh, trying to you know get more experience uh, in, in that sense, but I had already had a lot of experience being a, a freelancer. And uh, my first project that was uh, uh, you know was like a writing SCADA code for SCADA controllers uh, for a jet uh, like a real time data. Uh, using Visual Basic, and uh, it was uh, you know um, <laughs> chemical injectors inside jet turbines that like GE was you know using, so that in real time they're cleaning the turbines and reading the sensors to see if the cleaning efficiency was. So it was kind of like PLC type stuff. Yeah, or? it was okay. very. It was it was you know very basic. Uh, for me, it was pretty easy, but no for, Yeah, <laughs> but for them, when I saw how important it was that we were able to do this, right. and you know. Um, it really changed because initially, you know, you're, and this is something that I think is important to hear for, for, uh, aspiring developers is that, um, it, some people or some media might make it sound like, oh, it's so complicated to, to, to build software. Well, in reality, it's really, if you break it down into smaller, you know, bite-sized problems, it's very straightforward to, to do. Um, so while I was working at a company here in Houston and, you know, when there was the, uh, a financial issue crisis, you know, after the dot com bubble and Enron, and it caused a lot of companies to go out of business. Um, I found myself looking for a job, and uh, I, I started reaching out to my friends who, you know, were like in re related IT stuff, and uh, got introduced to this uh, law firm that was handling uh, mass litigation uh, on a massive scale, and they were doing everything they could to keep up with the you know, access databases and things like that. So uh, they brought me in and I, um, for several years, I like built a, a application for them that um, was um, to allow 
law firms across the country to collaborate on mass litigation cases before, you know, in, in, a, in a secure way. Right. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So do, you, do you feel like, I mean, you were just saying that building software can, is actually pretty straightforward if you have the right kind of processes in place. I mean, have you, do you think that, I feel like it's almost one of those, the more things change, the more they say the same kind of thing. I mean, like, are you, there's still probably fundamentals that just yes. are the same as they've always been. And maybe some of the technologies change a little bit, but. Yes, that's, that's uh, something <clears throat> that's very important because, um, um, people who are new to software development, they think that, oh, I got to learn this language to become a developer. In reality, what you, I, what I think you, you should learn is the basics. Go, go learn the fundamentals, uh, computer science 101, you know, that that's basic. Learn about, um, what happens inside the computer when you, when you're writing code to do something, because that really helps you later on in ways that are so subtle that you may not realize it, sure. but, uh, because, for example, if you're debugging a problem that you're having and you're not very familiar with how memory works or, or, or there may be a leak or something like that, but also learning about data structures and different you know, algorithms and things like that. Because once you do that, you can then learn how to learn new languages. Right. You know? yeah. So um, I'm not really an advocate of one uh, technology techno stack over another or one language over another. I definitely have preferences. And I think everybody has different, every developer has different preferences and likes and dislikes. But I think at the end of the day, it's just a tool for a task. And it's important for you to be educated to know which tools are more suitable for which tasks so you can pick them. And very often I find myself using a tool that I don't really like, but it is the right tool for that right. task, yeah. you know, like yeah. Java, for example. I, I really hate Java. <laughs> <laughs> everybody knows that. So, um, yeah, but like overall, since you asked, at work, we've always been mostly a Microsoft shop. Yeah. And there's a lot of convenience in sticking to a platform uh, that, that gives you all the tooling and all the tool set that you can use. And that also has enough community, you know, yeah. uh, support behind it. Um, even just hiring too, right? I absolutely. Mean, to be yeah. able, yeah. bring people onto a project or to even just yes. have them jump right in. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, that that's something that even we kind of run into with some of our, the projects that we're working on on the dev side, right? Like, no code tools are great if you can find people that know how to code in them yeah. or dev in them. But if yeah. you can't, then it doesn't it doesn't doesn't make much of a difference. What uh, I'm curious too, because I didn't, you know, I just had never thought about it until uh, like I was at Hive Cell, really. But you know, people think a lot of people think you know, dev and coding is it's just Python or C or whatever it is. But then you know, when you you have to take a step back and understand the architecture, right? And like the server, you know, that's to me as someone who has never been formally educated on the kind of software dev side, it's like, okay, you start writing little scripts and little things here. And then you're like, okay, well now I want to do this by itself and I want it to do it on a schedule or every time this thing occurs, it's like, okay, well now I need to spin up a server and, and then I now need to figure out what all of that means. And then you've got like the frameworks and the OSs and all of the stu yeah, stuff down at the versus, hardware. Yeah. yeah. The hardware layer. And then, yeah, the different platforms, whether it's arm or, uh, yes. And so it's, I think that's one thing that a lot of people either on the outside or just starting out don't really understand that it's a very deep, uh, kind of. Well, there's a lot of things distracted for people that they don't appreciate. And I think yes. that's what you're getting to as well. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to um, why are you trying to learn this uh, again? Because um, 
if I was, for example, a petroleum engineer who's trying to learn, you know, skill up and learn um, how to uh, use uh, coding tools and things like that, uh, it's for a completely different purpose than if it was someone who's trying to build software to sell, right? Correct. So there's very different paths for those two things. Um, and um, like since you mentioned, you know, the, the, the DevOps that go around building software, I was building something internal that only I am going to to use, then um, it's really pretty straightforward. I could, you know, write uh, a single file, you know, of code and have a, a ta task scheduler on my machine. And then now I have an automated right. thing, right? And, uh, and, uh, and I've had, uh, you know, I've had stuff like that built internally that only I would use. So it would run something for me on my machine. But know that when my machine is not working, <laughs> right. this whole thing is basically <laughs> yeah. shut down, right? Or um, let's say I'm, I'm writing this little script that will hit an API that has, uh, you know, prices or I, I want to keep a, my own spreadsheet updated. Uh, if that API that has the prices on it is now down, uh, then what's going to happen? Right. Am I going to get alerts? Am I going to be able to get caught up when it's back up and right. retrieve the values that I missed. So these are all things uh, that you have to think about when you're building commercial software where that may, may not be that important if you're building something personal. For right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. And even like some of the, like the testing that you yeah. put around your code oh, I mean, or lack thereof. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, testing, absolutely. documenting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's a, uh, that's very, very true. Security is the biggest Security, thing, right? Absolutely. So when, when you're building, so the way I, I was thinking about like, what, what would be a good uh, example? If you're building something personal or something internal for a small company that only you're going to use, it's like you're building your own dirt bike, right? It's loud and, but it gets the job done. It takes you from point A to point B and you know how to fix everything yep. and you can see everything that's in it. But if you're building a commercial application, then that's what you, you got to think of it like you're building a limousine bus that should ferry people safely and securely over public roads. Now it's not on your property yeah. anymore. So you got to, you have so many other things, regulations right. that go into place and you have to worry about other people's safety and data safety. And, and so that's, that's, I think, a good example. And the size, the scope of what you need to build changes so much. Yeah, you know? I think it's something John and I learned pretty quickly when we were working on a web app at Reservoir Data Systems. Um, and, you know, admittedly probably had no business running that project, but we were the people that, you know, yeah. that were tasked with it and learned a ton from it. Um, but just I think people underappreciate how hard it is to write software that is easy to use. Like, like, well, so. especially at a, at a, you know, commercial or pseudo commercial scale where it's going to be used by people that you can't directly talk to. Like just, I mean, GUI, you know, UI UX design is so important these days, right? Like you can have the best software, yeah. the best model, the best algorithm, whatever. But if your GUI sucks, it's unintuitive or it's not geared to towards the user, right? I think that's a big problem in the oil field. It's getting better. But, you know, you've got all these platforms that they want field guys to be entering information or going through a process or a workflow or whatever. And it's like, well, if, if it was written by a developer who has no idea about what their day-to-day -day looks like and what they have to deal with and what is when they're supposed to be doing this process and, you know, do they have connectivity? Does it need to have offline, all those different variables and nuances? It's not, there's a much lower likelihood of success than if you go talk to those people and really understand it. Right. Absolutely. And, and this is why I believe that, um, 
experienced engineers who become software developers have, uh, because they have the subject matter expertise, can be much more successful at Agreed. it than, you know, developers who have to learn the industry, right? So um, one of the things I did, and initially when I started working in the oil and gas industry, I was a consultant and um, I was embedded with the client and we still are. We work, you know, in their office, in the same room sometimes with, 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 with the users so we understand what they want. Otherwise, you just cannot, there's so much that can get lost in translation and, and you cannot read their minds or you cannot understand how they're using the system or out in the field, you know, on site when, when you're developing something that's going to be used while they're drilling, you know, things like that. Um, also for like uh, a new developer, what it, so you mentioned what, what goes around building commercial software. It's very easy to make to make someone realize what goes in because what 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 you can do is you can build an API that says um, this is an API that when you call it it will give you certain data right uh, you can write that in a few lines of code it's very simple it it hits a SQL database and gives you back some data it works now how do we make it commercial well now we have to first build the testing around it we have to build a deployment pipeline so that. Whenever we make an update, right. we hit a button and it, it deploys a new version without shutting down anybody, right? We have to do CI, CD, continuous integration. Mm -hmm. um, then we have to have... too, right? Don't forget that too. Of That's course. That, now we have authentication and authorization mm -hmm. to make sure that this... And then uh, encryption. Right. And then we have to do redundancy. So what happens when this right. data center that your API is in goes down? Do, do all your customers have to wait or do you have a failover plan right. back in, Right. Uh, is it seamless or is there like, you know, what's your time to recovery? Mm -hmm. So there's so many things that go into yeah. that. Even just something as simple as how much data are you going to return to them? Yeah. Is it going to be free or yeah. is it going to cost one? Like how much, that's a whole nother thing. We were having that conversation earlier this week in the office talking about, uh, who was it? Twitter just came out and now they're charging for their API. And it's like, well, I was, I don't know who it was, but it was on a podcast and he was talking about how, you know, there have been these entire platforms that were basically built on Twitter's free API that were essentially abusing it. Right. And every people don't realize every time you call an API, it costs money. Yes, and so yeah. it's like, that's a whole nother thing to consider that a lot of people don't even think about. Right. It's like, yeah. Oh yeah, I just need yeah. an API. It's like, well, if you're well, and good API design with like rate yep. limiting and, yep. you know, and, and documentation, you, you got to do rate limiting and throttling mm -hmm. and things like that. And what, I mean, most people realize is that first it costs money to develop anything. And then it costs money to host it, right? And then and maintain it, keep right. updated. And then it costs money to for data that goes in and out of yep. that, right? So, of course, I like the idea of free APIs, and that would be great. But uh, at the very least, you have to recoup your costs. So, mm -hmm. what do you do then? As you're if you're a big company like Twitter, I don't know about that because yeah, I mean, you know, but if you're a small, if you're if you're you know oil and gas software company where it's a small market with sometimes tons of data that people need to transfer in and out. Um, you can either bake that price into your general price right. so that it's, you know, for, taken for granted, but then you're penalizing those who don't use the API. And it's a very small percentage of users that actually need the API. Right. I yeah. just recently posted a, a poll on my LinkedIn to see whether people prefer Excel versus you yeah. know, APIs and or exporting a CSV. So I, I plan on offering all of the above because yeah. why restrict, you know, just Absolutely. let everybody get what they need. And um, I really wasn't planning on charging for the API, and I still don't think I'm going to, even though my team thinks that we should, because 
we need to be able to justify supporting it and, and you know things like that so it's very tricky it's a, you know it's something the whole pricing thing is very tricky yeah to, to begin with. i mean those are those apis are not the apis that they're using to interact with the app generally probably either right i mean it's not you know you have a so yeah we APIs have internal and, we have internal apis that we developed and then the public facing api is going to be completely different yeah so it's a separate product almost. yeah so that's a completely separate yeah. product yeah that's that's something that most people think no if you have an internal api just let us have at it right you can't do that or, or yeah. just give us access to the database right yeah. Uh, yeah. actually i what what i end up doing because that was very common request yeah. and and i end up explaining to them that for many reasons security being number one but the many other reasons you cannot have access to the database because yeah. you could shut the whole thing down by just making too many reads you know locking and things like yeah. that so what I end up doing is for those clients that are willing to, you know, uh, to, to have their own database, um, I replicate one for them and it's a yeah. read-only database so that they can just, you know. And you host that or, or do some, you sometimes do like the replication from yours to theirs? Um, I give them a choice. So yeah. uh, if they want to have their own database, that way I don't charge them anything. I just yeah. push the data to it. And um, if they don't know how to do that or they don't want to bother with it, then I host it for them and I just... Uh, pass the cost to them. I yeah, don't, I don't really, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's whatever it's to host. Do the yeah, SQL or whatever. Yeah, it's like sometimes like maybe a hundred bucks a month or something yeah. like that. For, for I've got a question for both of you because um I don't have a a dog in this fight at the moment, but I do uh, at least from a theory perspective. What? How do you see? So, given that you know Twitter and it looks like more and more companies are going to start charging for APIs, how do you see that? kind of playing out, you know, in the marketplace, at least in the energy space. Right. And, you know, my back, Bobby knows my stance on this is it's, you know, most of the time in oil, in the oil field, the data that we're dealing with, at least from the software side is technically the operator's data. It's somebody else's data. The flip side of that is you're doing manipulations, transformations, et cetera, to make that data more valuable. So then you're adding value to it. But then at the end of the day, you know, is it their data so they should always have the right to it? Is it their data so they should always have the right to it as long as it's, you know, they're not abusing the API or something like that? Or is it, you know, some kind of hybrid of you can get, you know, so many returns or so much frequency for free. And then if you want it faster or more often, or you want, you know, all of the data back to the beginning, kind of a dump type deal, they pay extra for it. I'm just curious kind of what y'all's thoughts are since y'all are kind of on yes. opposite sides of the, the yes. market. So first I'll explain how I've dealt with this in our yeah. you know, business. And then I can give you my opinion uh, on, on the rest. Uh, internally, what we've done, we've so we've had um, clients come in different sh shapes and sizes. So some of them have uh, no IT staff to handle these kinds of things. So they want us to just uh, host a database for them and they have full access to it as much as they want, no limits, um, and just they pay the hosting cost for it, right? Like hundred bucks a month. That enables them to have a simple connection string uh, that is we secure it so that only their IP address right. can, you know, do and then they can plug that into their Spotify or Power BI. Right. And then they're just in the database. They can, yeah, yeah, they can build or put it in their own data warehouse if they have one. Um so that's that's the easiest. So I have other clients where they wanted something on premise. So there's many different ways to do that. We can either, uh, you know, feed it directly right. or just send them a daily backup of the whole. Day. We've done that as well, uh, because I strongly believe that this is the customer's data and they should never feel that they right. don't have access to it. 
because I've had clients come to us from other solutions where they were made to feel as if, you know, uh, this isn't really possible. Oh, you want all your data? You know, we can't. It's in the cloud. We can't really. <laughs> you got to go into the application and export every Excel it's file. It's connected to the internet. Yeah. So and therefore you can't have it. And I know this is just an assumption, but I don't know if some of that has to do with the stickiness of the application. Like if we make it really hard mm -hmm. for these customers to export all their data, maybe they won't leave us. Right. Maybe they'll just, you know. And I deal with this every day because I have customers coming to us from different applications. Right where the hardest thing is for them to give us their older data because they don't have an easy way of getting it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want us to become experts on other people's databases. <laughs> so it's really hard for us to, uh, time consuming to import that data and figure it out how to put it back together from different reports and things like that. So, uh, so what we do is we try to give people as much access to the data as we can without breaking the bank because uh, if you if you give an API to someone and uh, tell them it's unlimited, right? Whether it's free or whether they're paying for right. like a, a nominal fee, um, there's a difference because someone on the you know Matt Harriman Slack channel asked was was uh, saying API should be free. There's no additional cost for getting data out of an API versus getting data out of the application. And I said that's wrong. And yeah. here's why that's wrong. When you're using an application to get your data out, there's guardrails. The application controls how many requests to make. Right. You know, maybe the data can be cached, can be given to you in a very economical way. Or done in batches. Or done right? in batches, yep. right? Versus if you're using the API however you want, you can make as and people tend to then open up the, you know, the faucets and just like let. I, I, one example, uh, we, we wrote a custom application for a you know big client here in Houston who had uh, they they were paying for service uh, public data from one of the big vendors that you know they buy data for the whole country, and uh, they have an API. But it was very hard to deal with, so we wrote a custom application that um, pulls data from that API and puts it in their own on premise. Um, they wanted all they wanted way too much data, and very fre more frequently than necessary. And we try to keep it simple by saying, look, you can get you know the the, the full data and then just get incrementals and right. no, we got up, you know, so people do abuse the, yeah. you know, that, that, that API and it ends up being a very expensive, uh, you know, uh, cost for, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was talking to someone at one of those vendors you're talking about, he works for them now and he was saying on the API, just how it's actually not the companies you think that are abusing is like, you know, the BPs of the world actually have good developers that pull it properly and incrementally. And like the, you know, they may pull a lot because they just the volume, but that it's actually like some of these smaller people, these small companies that have inexperienced developers or like an engineer that knows a little bit of Python and yeah. they're pulling everything every time. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. so yeah, there's definitely that side of it. I mean, I'd say from my side, I mean, obviously as on the operator side, we want everything as cheap as we can get it. Right. Um, to kind of shift a little bit, like I feel like I'm almost like going the other way on APIs. Like I used to like the idea of APIs, but, Hey, there's a lot of bad APIs out there. Yep. <laughs> like, and there's not really any kind of good standard. I mean, there's some of them returning XML, some of them return, you know, it's just, and then, I mean, some of them just bad. Like one of them, it was returning not enough data. And they're like, sorry, we can't give you that. You can see it on the front end, but we actually can't access some of that data for you through the API. So I was like, well, this is useless. And I just wasted two days of development, you know, against it because <laughs> I can't get what I need out of it. Yeah. Um, Documentation is a <clears throat> very underrated thing, in my opinion, when it comes to APIs, because it's like, 
it's very clear when you start messing with them, when you find a very good documented API, and then when you find a really crappy one where it's just like, here's the call and here's one of the potential thousand returns that it could have, or yeah. like, here's, yeah. here's one example of some of the parameters that you can pass, but we're not going to tell you all of the other parameters, even though they do exist. Yeah. Or just like random stuff like but that. Even like say on the data engineering side, like I deal with some APIs and some of them I don't feel are made for actually for like data consumption as much yeah. as like they are for integration they're built for integrations so then maybe it's great for passing data back and forth between these applications but then for me to get it and it's heavily nested and it's yes. pretty gnarly then it's yeah. like it's a pain <clears throat> in the butt to pull out um i mean i like where some people are going again like to your point like if someone can just share a sql server database with me like awesome we're great <laughs> you know but again it depends on the size of the data too um but I mean, now a lot of people have like the snowflake and that, and that is making data really easy to share across. And I think we're going to see a kind of a just a change and maybe not just snowflake, but people sharing like their data lakes, if you will, or being able to share like parquet files or stuff across, you know, just making those things accessible to for people to query against or pull over. Like it's almost like we're going to go back to the FTP days, yeah. but with slightly different technology as a middleman. But tell yeah. me more about that. Just for like the general audience or, you know, the C-suite manager level person that generally speaking, kind of understands this stuff, but doesn't necessarily know the technical side of it <clears throat> as well. What kind of, what, what do you mean by that? Okay. So, I mean, I think we talk about Snowflake and I think it'll be a similar paradigm, but like, so Snowflake and a lot of these new modern data warehouses, the storage is separated from the compute. So what makes it really nice, and we've done it with one of our frack vendors and we're looking into it with maybe with some of the public data vendors now too, a lot of them have it, is they can do these simple like data shares. So, you know, Company X shares data with company Y and within like three buttons, you know, I tell them, here's my account information, blah, blah, They put it in. Now their data is available to me in a database on my side of the world. And now when I hit it, you know, I pay for the compute against it, but they're covering, the, they're paying for the storage and the storage is generally pretty cheap or very nominal for, yep. you know, most people now. So they're still hosting it. They're hosting the data. The data. And then you're paying right. for the compute to pull it into your yeah, instance, essentially. To, but then, you know, so now like that frack data that we have across, like I can just query it alongside everything else in my data warehouse and I don't need to do any API calls to get it. I don't need to have a nightly process when data is added to their database. Right. It's available Pushes. to mine. Yeah. Yeah. So really reducing. I mean, but again, people are some people are pretty proud of those. I mean, you, you're going to pay for it, but then you step back and say, well, how much data engineering time would it right. take to you know not just only develop against it and get all these tables but then also to have them available in real time right. and, you know, so that's a very valid point because i think a lot of people me included i used to be in this camp as well is like oh well they've got an api right like that'll be easy and then it's like well okay anytime the api gets updated you now have to update your call yeah or and, anytime uh, they switch the like the thing i deal with on the marketing side a lot is the oauth right so like each social media company has a different oauth uh, you know, process for using the API and they constantly change them, which is like, okay, great from the security perspective, but I'm just trying to get my Google analytics data in an easy way without having to rewrite this stupid <laughs> call every six months. Yeah. So, and, and I think where it's going to go though, cause like one thing that Snowflake had most of their stuff is in proprietary format, but now you're seeing a lot more, I mentioned Parquet and there's like Iceberg, which is like, I think Parquet with some metadata around it. And now like Databricks, their whole things that their Delta tables are, are open source. So like, I mean, now I think you're going to see more of that where like they can just give you access, probably do that data sharing with an open format. Now, if you want to hit with Python or R or, right. you know, some SQL engine or Spark or whatever, then like that stuff's there for you to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wasn't too familiar with the Snowflake, but after your talk about it on on that, you know, last, the, the data, yeah, 
uh, a couple of months ago, I think. Yeah, month or so. yeah we, I, I went and looked at it and I looked at DBT and it's very impressive at, you know, what, yeah. what you D- can do. DBT with, is especially <laughs> the, the low cost of, of being able to just turn it off when, when, when you're done. And, uh, um, and I think that more and more companies are realizing the benefit of, of having these abilities to, to just do the data set once and share it. And, uh, recently Power BI just, uh, you know, announced that now you can have, uh, uh, shared data sets mm. between organizations. Oh, so nice. yeah, what you can do is you can prepare the data sets. And, uh, and back to your point about the data engineering piece, that's another reason why the public API has to be different than the private API mm-hmm. because it's a completely different data model. And also the databases that we host for companies, uh, very few actually want the relational database. Most of them want a analytical database. So yeah, what we do is we, fl- we flatten it out for them. And instead of getting, you know, 100 tables, they get five or six tables. And it's very yeah. easy for them to, to process. So they don't have to know that person ID equals ID yeah. person's table. Yeah. And, those, yeah. you know, and, like, yeah. and, and uh, you know, like recently, for example, I have a client who's buying a new property and they just send us a whole SQL database of a third-party product. It's, it's so hard to decipher that the, the model because everything is GUIs and, and yeah. And there's no clear, there's no actual relationships between the tables. So yeah. you have to kind of do esoteric things to figure out whether or not this is a, so the data model is very important. And this yeah. is why like I, we spend so much more time on it to make it as simple as possible. So if I, you know, hand it to someone, they can just look at it and understand what it yeah. is. Yeah. Well, no, that's better on your side. Well, you know, it's kind of putting that effort up front so that, you, you know, less like yeah, and back like when, and forth. When we bring in a new team member, you don't have to sit there for six months trying to explain to them where all these, you know, they <laughs> yeah. can, they can just pick it up in a week. And, yeah. Yeah. No, or yeah. Even on the client side, I mean, Bobby and I spent a lot of time, you know, we were very adamant with our web app that it had a, a good functional useful api and i mean i wrote a bunch of the documentation on it just by using it and uh even then with with what i thought was very clear very straightforward you know it returned whatever a thousand records and then had a uh pagination number (laughs) or it returned the last value of the last record or i'm sorry the last unix timestamp of the last record and then you could just append that to your call to start yeah. and, and just loop through it. But something as simple as that, we spent yeah. hours and hours on yeah. calls with people to the point where I just built a little collab, a collab note book with it that had the template in there. So I could just send it to people because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Pagination is, is one of the, you know, hairiest thing mm-hmm. in, in APIs. There's an easy solution for it. Instead of having to force people to use timestamps and things like that, uh, one of the suggested ways is when you're when you're writing an API and you want to give uh, a result set back that is paginated, in the in the response you put the next URL. Mm-hmm. So all okay. they have to do oh, is just the URL. URL. That's really yeah. Smart, so they actually. take that and post right. it as, an, as the next, and you just keep going until feed a timestamp variable. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that way you can also do the previous, so you can you know rewind it. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. No, that's slick. So, I mean, I think being on a similar, you know, because you talk about sharing SQL Server databases, I mean, in that you generally are a Microsoft stack. Can you talk about some of the benefits of the Microsoft stack? I mean, because I feel like it's pretty ubiquitous, especially in the oil and gas yeah. industry, yeah. like whether it's just how well it integrates with AD and, you know, just, you know, but most people have SQL Server, so that SQL Server replication is more yes. straightforward. Or, yeah. So, um, 
I, like I said, I encourage people to use the best tool for the job, right? And sometimes you only have one tool, so there's not that much to choose from. Yeah. Other times you have so many and you have to do a lot of weighing to figure out. So um, to give you like the, the, the whys, why we, why we chose to stick with, with mostly Microsoft products was because uh, there's so much uh, help out there for you know how to solve certain problems. And when you're building commercial software, you cannot dig it. It's, you, so one of the, you know, for example, uh, arguments that people make, well, I want to use this such and such uh, free open source solution instead of paying for a Microsoft product, because if I want to fix something and the source is there, I can go, yes, but are you are you building a product? Or are you going to fix someone else's, mm -hmm. you know, source? Yeah. You don't have time for that kind of stuff when you're when you're on a, on a schedule. Uh, also, you need support. You need to be able yeah. to to integrate with other, you know, so a lot of the things that we initially were building were integrating with office tools and, yeah. you know, things like that. Uh, and um, it just makes more sense. Now, uh, I, I want to address them like piece by piece, right? So sure. the, 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 the RDBA, the, the, the Relational Database Software Management System, RDBMS, SQL Server. Uh, initially, when I built the first commercial product that we had, uh, Production Year, uh, I wanted to make sure that I could sell it to any company, regardless of which uh, SQLs, which database server they were using. Mm. And the first version of Production Year uh, that came out in 2007 was uh, on-premise. Okay. By 2009, it became a SaaS solution uh, in the cloud. Um, but in 2007, I built a data uh, obfuscation layer so that I could be, you know, database agnostic. And the API itself does not know which it's database server is talking to. Yeah, exactly. And so that I can map these different functions to return the same data set, regardless of where they're getting the database from, the, the data from. And uh, because I knew that some of my clients, because I already done some consulting for them, use Oracle, yeah. for example. It ended up being that this was kind of a waste of time because up until now, everybody's still okay with SQL Server. Yeah. And even the company that had Oracle they had a SQL Server as well. Sure. Right? So, so uh, it's kind of table stakes. And, so. Yes. <laughs> and then once we moved it off premise, then nobody really cared what the. Um, but the fact that if you look, well, um, even back then when we started, if you look at the tooling around SQL Server, Oracle had this horrible user interface for like a, a comparison to SQL Server Management Studio, for mm -hmm. example, where if you're writing queries and you want to see the results and analyze the query path and the plan and things like that, you had this tiny little window where you can just write the code and you have to copy paste it to see it, the whole thing. It's just, it was just a horrible user interface. And uh, I, I don't know if they fixed it since then. Yeah. This is very old <laughs> for me. But also the cost was a big factor. Uh, the The... The, the features in it that, you know, how easy it is to do replication and, uh, you know, failover or clustering and things like that. Um, the, the ability to, to uh, how hard it was to train someone to become a database administrator where they can administer the backups and all these other things. All of that played, but also the biggest piece was that if you're uh, going to a company where most companies had, you know, started something in an access database, going from an access database to a SQL database was yeah. almost a no-brainer. Yeah. You can pretty much do a, you know, plug in like shift and lift, or is it, you can take someone's um, access database, replace the tables that they had in access with links to a SQL server table. Okay, yeah. And they wouldn't even, and, and most of the time the query, the syntax is almost identical between, uh, there's a few changes you have to edit, sure. like replacing double quotes with single quotes and okay. things like that. 
uh, and the joins, but uh, you can take all these queries that they've built. Like I'm talking about Aries, for example, where they had engineers who have been building queries on top of Aries and stuff. Views. So taking that and converting it to SQL is almost instant. And they don't have to learn anything new because everything is still there. Right. So that was also very helpful. Yeah. Uh, now, the analytics. So initially when we started SQL Server, SQL Server 5 in uh, 2005, okay. uh, didn't have a good uh, reporting engine. It was SQL Server reporting services. So I had to use uh, Crystal Reports, which okay. was back then a big commercial product. But still, it was like still hanging around. It was like pulling teeth. Yeah, they had like five hundred different versions of their. You know, I'm exaggerating. So many different versions of their DLLs, and if you're left-handed, you have to install this DLL, and if you're right-handed, you have to install. It. <laughs> and if you install both of them on the same computer, it will blow Corrupts up. It, yeah, it was so time-consuming and painful, but we had to use it because uh, back then it was the best you know option we could get. But then once there was a new version that came out of SQL Server reporting services, they were so much better. We immediately switched to that. And we're still using it for the paginated yeah. tabular reports and things like that. And the integration of that with SQL Server to be able to schedule and send out reports. And so again, um, tooling when it comes to development, uh, we've been using Visual Studio for ages and yeah. it's been constantly improving. They made a free version, a community version, uh, Visual Studio Code, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so we really, it's not about that we like always wanted to stick with Microsoft product, it was always the better choice for us, sure. right? We really had no reason to to go and, 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 and but to keep, um, to make sure that we were always doing the right decision, you have to educate yourself about what else is out there. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you have to be familiar with other IDEs, Eclipse and other things. And so uh, we try to do that, you know. Um, I'm not a big fan of trying to learn a new language just for, for, the, sake for the sake of, you yeah. know. But I think you should know that that language exists and what it can do mm -hmm. so that when the time comes where that language makes more sense, you at least know about making that decision and you're not. Because yeah. I've seen a lot of people stick to their guns right. and this is what we use and yeah. they end up, it ends up being a disaster sometimes because yeah. they're yeah. using the wrong thing. Like Rust, most people have probably have no reason to use Rust, but if you were going to have to learn C Sharp or learn Rust, it sounds like Rust might be the best choice. Or, or not C Sharp, C++, sorry. Like if you had to do something embedded, you know, it's yeah. starting to sound like Rust may be the best choice if you were going to. Absolutely. If you, if you never, never had to go that deep, maybe that's the best choice now. Even, not for me because I already know C Sharp, C++. Okay, but, yeah. So to me, I don't see the benefit of learning Rust yeah. unless maybe there is something there that I cannot do in C++. Sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, even tying it back to something that I've had lots of conversations with you about something as simple as like R versus Python, right? Like they're both similar in a lot of aspects, but they do very different things. Yeah. Right. I mean, Python's kind of a superset of that. I mean, I like just, Correct. I mean, it's, it's still kind of famous. It's, you know, probably not even just second best, but it's second best at everything. You know, like, yeah. Whereas like, you know, there's definitely tools that are better, you know, there's better web development tools. There's better this and that, but I mean, the, if you learn enough Python, you can be dangerous in a lot of things and at the very least prototype with it. But. Yeah. I want to know your favorite either tool that you've been using forever or new tool that that uh, you've recently come across that you're you're using these days, either cloud, software-based or... Uh, my favorite, the, so Power BI, for example, is one of my favorite tools right now because it's amazing how fast you can, you know, visualize something and show it to someone and it will save you time versus having to explain right. something. Yeah. Uh, to give you an example, um, 
we were having a discussion about a, a new field uh, and how, whether or not the the import of the prior uh, you know third party application what was okay so to take that uh, and generate a field schematic in Power BI was just a few minutes versus us having to present it in a table version and you right. know just one example no for sure um, so that's a gr- and it's so easy for anyone to learn it well, and the desktop free, version right? is free right yep, so yeah. that's so uh, we're we're we were currently creating a solution for a client where um, they did not want to pay for the embedded Power BI to go into the, the application. Uh, but they wanted to have the benefit for internal purposes. And they didn't know that if you just wanted to use it internally, you can just run it on your desktop <laughs> right. and, and it connects oh, to your database. Yeah. And, and the application didn't really need it, like right. what they needed internally. So uh, so so that's a, a good tool to, to know about. Uh, another tool that I've been using for ages is um, uh, called SQL Compare. It's from Redgate. I just, just used that last week. It's, yeah. So... Uh, we and it's one of they have so they have many tools but this is one of my favorites one uh, SQL data compare and SQL compare one of them compares schema one of them compares data if you're synchronizing databases or if you have um, the same database that you're using for multiple clients like we do um, and you want to make sure that let's say you added a column and that every database it's and, replicated and, and, correctly yeah it it just makes it a click and you see everything. That's pretty so, slick. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a great yeah. tool. I bet that would be very, very useful. Yeah. For Full disclosure, we're yeah. partners with Redgate, so just, but they, okay. there's there's other competitors out there that do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I literally just had to use it last week because we're going through a migration from one version of our ERP to another, and like this new one is kind of a they've actually merged. They've had talking about software development practices they didn't really have the best they had like different code branches for each operator they worked with which was not good so they this next version is basically them merging the best of class of all those in but basically was able to take our you know previous version of the database and compare it to like the uat version we have mm-hmm. now and i was able to just basically confirm that all right these came across and that the data types were the same and you know yeah. we could feel good that you know there wasn't any breaking changes yeah they they, they also have a, one of their tools is the dashboard that Shows you all your databases between development, testing, and production, and shows you if there's any drift. So if one of them starts to drift off of the schema, oh, wow. it will line. Yeah, that's like, pretty cool. Yeah, shameless plug to uh, Power BI because I'm also a big Power BI fanboy. I think it's a great, it's a great introduction, like all the way from full blown production, like Talal's doing, to even just I'm an engineer and I'm getting interested in you know data science or data manipulation or things like I use it all the time. For data manipulation yeah, because it's easier for me to d- use their GUI than it is to code it. There's right? a really good thread oh, was it last week or whatever. So on, on the upstream Slack, <laughs> um, it Zach Warren, I think, brought it up. But uh, I mean, again, because Spotfire is still pretty ubiquitous and, for there, sure. and, and there's good reasons for it. But like at the same time, I mean, I think, and I think one thing to your point about using Microsoft Tech, if it's not good yet, it, just wait because yep. it will be. Absolutely. I mean, and like and they just rapidly improve things. I mean, even Power BI in the last three, four years. Like I remember trying it out right after they bought whatever company that was and kind of started distributing it under Power BI, Microsoft's license and stuff. And it sucked. It was terrible. And even, I mean, within that year, I was using it on a fairly regular basis. You know, their integrations with Python and R and all that stuff like makes it very, very handy um, and very useful. Not not the best for uh, high frequency time series data. I will throw that out there unless you want to find a, a custom plot but but i mean even for them i mean like the visualization stuff is fine and the thing is it's, mo- it's good enough for most i mean like yep. there's some Agreed. gis capabilities that leave something to be desired for me and that's why a lot of people haven't made the move but like 
just, I mean, Power Query and then just like the data sets and data flows mm -hmm. and like the data engineering behind it. That, yep. Again, that citizen data engineers or data scientists can use like and be dangerous and add value yes. to the companies. And yeah, um, yeah. No, it's so a great, great tool. It's sketching up. There's a lot of, uh, so also full disclosure, I'm our BI partner as well. Um, we're, we've been tracking it since day one. And uh, we were using Spotfire for our clients because that's what they had. Right. But then as soon as Power BI started to meet some of these, you know, basic requirements, like you said, we immediately switched and we even developed our own visuals for it, you know, for, for what we wanted mm. to do. Uh, but then before long, the built-in visuals met all those missing features so that now the visuals that we developed are maybe not needed anymore, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but yes, GIS is one area where it's still kind of behind, yeah. even though they have the Esri map, where, but you have to have like a, a separate paid, I guess, yeah. account for it. And I think I just saw recently. They do have a map, or map box at one point had a, yeah. Had yeah. a but even those, decent like, plugin. The, but that's the problem, like a lot of plugins. Yeah. And yeah. Little, you know, um, but I mean, I think got the Azure Maps thing, and I, I and I just found out recently. I think they're looking at doing multi-layer stuff through Azure yeah. Maps. I mean, it again, if you don't like it, just wait. You know, another year, look at <laughs> there. I mean, that's true. But the true power, like you said, is in the background. What happens yep. in, yeah. with, with the Data Mart, with the Dataverse, with the yeah. Power Query? Yeah, I mean, there's there's new feature coming out every week. Uh, you know, and we're like we we have to keep up. Yeah. So when you know one of the things that we used to do when uh, Zach had a, Zach Warren had this um, Power BI meetup group. And uh, we would have to um, spend a lot of time every month to uh, do uh, like a five minutes of what's new in Power BI and try to compress it all. <laughs> yeah, right. It was a lot of work because of how much new features they have. Yeah, but even it. like the tooling around it now with like Tabular Editor and, and yes. Zach Studio. I mean, there's yes. some really good developer tools, you know, around it too. Um, I mean, I think on a similar side, I mean, talk about some of the low code is kind of shifting into that. Uh, have you all had to do much with uh, like power apps or like yes yeah so but uh, in 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 the sense that if I need something very simple that we're not it's not something that's client facing and we want like you know to trigger something or to to monitor a process or have something that like we can interact with uh, I'm not a huge fan of low code or no code simply because most of what we do is commercial and we have to have yeah. full visibility full yeah. control you know things like that. But they do come in handy in a lot of scenarios, like you know, small scenarios like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use them though to build a an application. Fold, yeah. And I know this may rub some people the wrong way. I'm not gonna name any names, <laughs> Jeff. Uh, but uh, uh, I just, it may work, right? And you have to put a lot of effort into it. So to take a low code, from what I've seen, to take a low code platform and build a complete app on top of it, it's not. Like it's not like what the brochure says. It's not an overnight thing. Yeah, yeah. You have to make you have to work a lot on getting mm -hmm. it to look exactly like an mm -hmm. like a commercial application, and to make sure that you've you know secured everything and and be able to uh, onboard new customers on yeah. it without a lot of work. And so, on top of that, you're still at their mercy. Right? And like by the, the by the time you're all said and done, you're not really that far behind having right. to build everything on your own. Where you have yeah. you know. So no, I think Power Apps to me is a really good or, you know, Zapier insert, whatever connector trigger, uh, workflow you want to use. But to me, it's a very good, like quick and dirty internal integration, or like even just a proof of concept in my mind, right? Like if you are at a big company and you are an engineer and you're trying to figure out this workflow and you have this idea, and then you see that you can do it through power apps, set it up, test it, and then give that to a developer who can actually go 
right in, yep. right? Like it makes it much more straightforward and having, instead of having to like write out, you know, your business case and do it just on paper, it gives, it gives you the ability to kind of show them and demonstrate it. We have, we, we've got five more, five, 10 more minutes left. Um, I want to pivot and ask you about, uh, AI, ML, GPT and all things, uh, forward facing with that and kind of the energy space. What, you know, what do you see, what are you getting questions about? What do you see people doing? What are you, what are y'all looking at doing with some of that stuff or, um, this is this is one of those things where we're trying to be very cautious and wait as much as we can to make sure that we're not uh, investing in, in you know uh, in a bad way. Uh, yep. Here's why: uh, first, um, there's a lot of solutions out there already built, but they don't all scale very well. Right. And uh, when when it comes to all companies, our clients. There's a big difference between a small operator and a big operator and what they can benefit from or afford in terms of these kinds of solutions. So um, as far as I'm concerned, what I would like to, uh, what I'm actually planning on on getting involved in is ways to use the existing data that we have to offer the user some uh, intelligent insights, right? Um, and if you go through our websites and brochures and everything, you won't see a single mention of AI or ML. And because we're trying to be very careful, we're, we're very serious about what we do. And the last thing I want to do is use buzzwords, you know. So I would rather give you ubiquitous uh, insights that are so seamless that you wouldn't even know right. that there's an intelligent algorithm behind this that's, you know, kind of coming up with that. But um, what I like to call it is... Um, and this is just a term that I coined, kind of um, gut instinct analytics. So if you have an, you're looking at a chart, and we gave you an insight, and as soon as you see it, your gut tells you that this is correct, right? This is so. As an experienced engineer, oops, I poked the microphone. As as an experienced engineer, you know that it's telling you this is what happened here, you know, because we think that there's a hole right. in the tubing or something like that. So. Uh, without without trying to sell that aspect, mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that's that's my stance on it. Here's why: there's a lot of um, um, snake oil out there. There's For a lot sure. of great solutions, I, and I know some of the people who are developing these great solutions. But there's also a lot of snake oil out mm -hmm. there, and uh, I just never really. And and like I said, uh, I started a long time ago, and I, you know, we, we were writing our own. Yeah. You know, and you were <laughs> right. Yeah, models. using yeah. Lisp and using other types of solutions to, uh, uh, you know, platforms to to create these uh, algorithms. And um, um, every time when there was a an AI winter, was because uh, the there was a lot of buzz. Right. It's and like then, a hype cycle. And, and then um, a lot of products were created, a lot of tools were created, but then they failed to deliver on uh, you know on the PNL at mm -hmm. the end of the day when yeah. when you want to benefit from it. And what happened is the funding dries up. And when the funding dries up, then the research stops. And right. then 10 years later, it starts over again. This time, we're seeing way better, you know, solutions, as you can see, especially with, with the, what you're, you know, chat GPT and the self-driving cars and all the different aspects of it. Uh, but as far as, far as the oil and gas industry, there's, uh, there's things. Look, so I've had a customer once ask me, um, I want a dashboard that just has green lights, and then when something goes wrong in any of our, I want a red light, and that's as simple as. And do you know the 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 amount of uh, 
intelligence behind that to to replace everything right. with just one single AI that tells you when something is going wrong across ten thousand wells. I mean, this is, and I want it in a year. Yeah, under right. a year. I've also got all these. Uh, I've got twenty years worth of data sets that are all unstructured, undocumented, and have errors full of them. And some of the, and some I want of, it for free. And some of the data they were getting <laughs> was unstructured data right. and PDFs. Yep. And so the expectations and the reality, and that's that's something that the yeah, yeah, which is which is why we weren't really rushing towards something for sure. Like yeah. yeah. Well, and then you hear about companies that pitch AI or whatever, and it's either a bunch of nested if statements or it's a bunch of people <laughs> in you know a third world country. Like, this is a dog. This is uh, yeah. you heard about the yeah. the doorbell where where it turns out to be people classifying things, and and then they said we're just training the system yeah. for yeah. a year. Well, now you've got. I saw yeah. there's a clothing company that just came out and it's, it's, <laughs> it's clothing that disrupts well-known computer vision models. So instead of identifying you as a person, it I identifies heard, you as like a banana or whatever. That. Like yeah. there's now there's this whole counter, yeah, right? Like crazy. we're swinging both ways. Yeah. But to but, summarize, I think there's a lot of promising things you can do yeah. and some companies are already doing them. I, unfortunately, what I've seen f- so far is that they're not affordable for everyone. They're just, you have to be really big to be able to get that kind of, and you have to have a massive amount of data. Uh, but if we can do something that we can then make it available to everyone uh, without them even realizing that, hey, we have a machine learning thing running in right. the background that's giving us that. Yeah. Because again, I, like I said, I don't I don't like to hype. Uh, no, for sure. No, no, yeah. Smart. I mean, our industry has. Because <laughs> well, then it cheapens the real work Absolutely. as well, right? I mean, yeah. Well, and it. Yeah. I, I like it to be like the flash feature in Excel, if you've seen it, like where, right. yeah. where click you know, and it fills down. Yeah, yeah. It, it learns from what you're doing and then it mimics it without mm-hmm. you even realizing that this is. Yeah, it's baked in. Yeah. I will say pro tip to anybody that's interested in that stuff, even just using chat GPT to debug and or document code is a very yeah. nice little life hack. Well, no, no, no. It, are you, it are documents you, code better than any human. Are you whatever. using um, uh, GitHub Copilot yet? Not yet, no. Uh, I I'm keeping an eye on it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I've seen other similar stuff, like very small projects that were trying to do that before. Yeah, it's very promising. No, it's uh, it's been pretty good for me. I've talked yeah. to a couple of people using different, totally different language. I you know mainly in Python, but yeah. another guy who's using Go, and it's just like you can literally write comments and yes. it'll spit out. Yes. You know, pretty much probably ninety percent functional code. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. Then, but then again, it still takes that subject matter or that expertise to be able to say this is good or bad yeah you know, but it, even while you're writing your code the suggestions have been really impressive too i think to me that here's the thing as as a software developer of course i want to do everything i can to make my life easier but at the end of the day when I, when let's say you're hiring a new developer yeah right you want to know that this developer is not starting to depend entirely on code generated by you know sure a, by an algorithm and uh, because I mean, you learn from making mistakes, but you have right. to learn from your own mistakes. You yeah. cannot learn if someone else is making mistakes, and you can't catch them, right? For so, sure. so people are depending on this code being correct, and that kind of scares me a little bit. Yeah, and well, I mean, uh, now they're just relying on that and not Stack Overflow. So <laughs> that too, right? Yeah. So, so it's great to have all these tools as long as there's you can understand. Yes, yeah. yes, you have yeah. the expertise. No, sure. to, yeah. yeah. All right, we've got a few more minutes, so I'm gonna ask kind of our last question and then Bobby we'll get into the speed round. What's one piece of advice you give to people looking at getting into the energy tech community or development community? I would say you wish that, you knew back in the day. Uh I wish I knew back in the day. Okay. Or, in or now. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, I would say that learning about the the data is just as important as learning how to code. And I see that a lot of people just think that that's secondary or, you know, uh, and I think it's it's just as important, if not more important. Yeah. Understanding the data, understanding data structures, understanding why, uh, you know, why something looks wrong on the chart that you're trying to create or something like that. Because, yeah. you know, I'm assuming that we're talking here to a lot of, uh, people who are going not to be just doing software development, mm -hmm. right? Because yes, you can be a UI software developer and not understand a thing about databases, <laughs> right. but yeah. that's not what our audience, right? No, I mean, I agree hundred percent. I mean, I'd say like our data team at Grayson Mill, all of us, including my manager, Corey, are former reservoir techs. And so we got exposure because on reservoir engineering teams, you get exposure to the drilling completions, you know, obviously reservoir engineering, like even geology kind of stuff. So, I mean, now when we're actually working data problems across the business, like we understand the yeah. why and I think understanding it, whether you're doing BI, you know, type stuff or, you know, developing the software to understand the, the problem is probably the most key. And the second advice I would say uh, is that, um, try to leave your ego outside the door because that helps you learn and, and don't get attached to like one language or, you know, yeah. That, yeah. That it's not, it shouldn't be a personal thing. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a tool to do a job and use, like I said, use the best tool and don't yeah. use a wrench as a hammer. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Even though they do that in the field too. But Yep. Um, Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. But All right. Um, we'll go real quick through the speed round and then, uh, no, we just, it's been great having you on. Um, Absolutely. So uh, what's your favorite cloud to work in? Um, Azure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, favorite database? SQL, SQL Server. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, open source tool. Open source tool. I would say... Um, this is a tough one. Uh, there's so many that I know. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping that OSDU is gonna be. Yeah, you know the, the yeah GitHub. A lot yeah. of other things that you know we use a lot of stuff. But uh, uh, there's something there though when you're developing commercial software, you want to reduce your um, de you know dependencies uh, and footprint. So. As much as open source tools are great <laughs> and they're all over the place, uh, we use them maybe to help us internally, right? But we try not to depend on them yeah. in, in the in the final in the end product because that's a scary thing. I mean, you've heard about yeah. the one uh, script the, on the you know NuGet package that brought down half the internet one, yeah. one time. Yeah. So and you know there's ways you can mitigate against yeah. that by like hosting everything locally and things like that. We're gonna but, have we're gonna have to have a full open source show with yeah. Of, yeah. No, there, there was something went through like the NumPy library was calculating things wrong at one yeah. point and it invalidated a lot of like scientific papers exactly. And, yeah. So so you have to be very conservative and very very careful when you're yeah. choosing dependencies on other tools and things like that. You want to do one more time and do the last one? Yeah, my my I I really want to know what's your favorite either current or all time video or board game. Oh man, um, my all-time favorite would have to be StarCraft. Yeah, nice. I'm a, it's you a know classic. And if you if you're familiar with it, uh, we there was this period of frustration and wait for the second one, the you know the second StarCraft to come out. And my friends and I, this was you know maybe I don't know 10, 15 years ago, yep. they kept promising and and launch date next year, and then pushing it by a year. So this is very relevant to software development because yeah. <laughs> now I'm, I'm afraid to like, okay, are we going to say our next sprint is going to be in, in April right. because we cannot miss that deadline. Yeah. So yeah, people will just stop believing you when you, when you. For sure. Yeah. yeah. No, we've been there. Starcraft. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, 
thank you so much for, yeah. for being thank our first for guest. How how can people find you if they want to? I'm i4.com. I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, this is the best way to kind of you know, uh, and uh, my website is mi4.com. Awesome. Mi and the number four. Yeah. Dot com. Perfect. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. Thank great. you for having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.